Hello and welcome to another edition of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. I am Rob Hunt, your host from Linnea Holdings, joined as always by Larry Michigan of Michigan Law in Chicago. And today we are going to talk about uh, one of the lesser known members of the Grateful Dead, or I think unheralded members of the Grateful Dead, who we've covered I think one time about two years ago with our buddy Greg Corner. But uh, today would be Vince Welnick's 72nd birthday. Uh, Vince, who was a member of the band from 1990 until uh, Jerry's passing in 1995, played, you know, multiple hundreds of shows with the band, and in many ways had a lot of huge contributions to the band that, again, go you know mildly unheralded. So uh, before we you know, listen to any music, how are you doing today, Larry? I'm doing just fine, thank you, Rob. Always a pleasure. And, um, you know, for me, Vince Welnick was uh, just the next logical step, right? We were seeing Brent and didn't realize how good we had it with Brent till Vince came along and everybody told us how much they missed Brent. But we were all worried because, you know, we had missed Keith and Pigpen and... What happens is you go out to the shows and they play great shows. And as soon as Vince started cranking away, we all quickly fell in love with him too. Yeah, we, we did. And, and obviously uh, there was you know, the transition that had um, Bruce Hornsby sitting in for you know, quite a while. So it wasn't just uh, Vince. You know, when, when Brent passed, I think everyone was wondering what was going to happen uh, to the band and would they go on. And you know, in many ways, Hornsby filled that, that role initially, uh, having had uh, some experience playing Grateful Dead music you know, previously. But for Vince, you know... Um, I, I, there's a handful of interviews out there, and one of the things that he had said was he didn't know the Grateful Dead's music. He never expected to be a member of the Grateful Dead. He thought maybe you know he would um, become friends of the Dead professionally, but he never thought that this would be something where he'd you know be invo- invited to join the band. So the whole thing was rather serendipitous when Brent passed, and they put out sort of an open casting call for who wanted to fill the seat, and he had to compete with you know Pete Sears was was one of the guys that uh, that interviewed in for the job, and there's a handful of other really well-known guys. And, you know, Vince was one of two keyboardists at, at the Tubes and wasn't known as, you know, sort of a, a marquee keyboard player. And there's so many people who said, oh, why didn't they pick this guy or pick that guy? And, you know, obviously Hornsby, I think, was the natural choice. But, uh, but when Vince came in, in in September of uh, of 1990 and played his first two shows at the Richfield Coliseum, um, look, the, the, the guy had to learn 200-plus songs, and he had to learn them in less than two months. And, uh, and figure it out, you know. So uh, not too many musicians, I think, can actually put that sheer volume of work in there. And, and, and what Vince said is the second he met Bobby and Jerry directly, first time he met them in person, was the second that he realized he would love to be part of this team and, and really wanted to be a member of the Grateful Dead. So, uh, you know, initially just joined in, but within like a year or so, uh, was already making major contributions to the band. So maybe we'll listen to, uh, to one Vince original here real quick and, uh, and, and talk about it on the other side. Actually, not a Vince original. That was the Beatles' "Rain" that was uh, being played there, and I think that one came to us um, from uh, Nassau Coliseum on March twenty eighth, nineteen ninety four. 
And what I'll say is that, you know, we've mentioned it before on the show, but uh, Vince is probably his biggest influence on the band was bringing in sort of new music that was, uh, you know, other cover songs. And he introduced a handful of Beatles tunes, uh, Tomorrow Never Knows and Rain being, being two of them. I think we'll listen to a little bit of both today. But uh, was also instrumental in bringing in Bobo O'Reilly and instrumental in bringing in a handful of other tunes to the repertoire. And, and what he had said in, in interviews that I've listened to is one thing that he loved about being uh, part of the Grateful Dead is that he could bring any song he wanted to the band and say, you know, hey, what do you guys think about doing this one? And, and Jerry's reaction was, yeah, why don't you learn it first, bring it in, and if we like it, you know, let, let's go for it. So he was saying that he really wanted to introduce some reggae into the uh, the action. You know, um, I think Waiting in Vain was the uh, the Bob Marley tune that he wanted to start playing with the band, which which never did materialize, but the band gave him the thumbs up and said, if you want to bring it in, bring it in. Uh, and I think, to my knowledge, the only Bob Marley song the Dead ever did was just the instrumental version of Stir It Up, which they did in uh, the spring of 1990, right before Vin, uh, Vince joined the band. But, you know, the harmonies in Rain, I think, from a, a harmony perspective, maybe only um, Broke Down Palace would be a, a, a better example of sort of that acapella style um, harmony that they were shooting for that they really didn't get to feature very often. But with like Vince's high, high vocals, high harmony, uh, it was really, it was a great addition to the team from a vocal perspective. Uh, don't you think, Larry? I do think, you know, I, I think that this tracks very consistently for the dead. When Brent joined the band and after he really got acclimated with the band, everybody talks about what a tremendous boost of energy he gave them and, and breaking out things like Dear Mr. Fantasy and other tunes that really kind of pushed the band uh, in different directions. And, you know, those of us who were seeing him back then can recall how energized Jerry always seemed to be, you know, and focused on playing with Brent. And I think that Vince, you know, kind of in his own way, and, and it wasn't easy for Vince, right? I think he he realized what his talents were. He, he certainly was a rocker. Uh, he saw other tunes that could fit into the band's style of play, even if they didn't necessarily see them your, themselves. And, you know, you bring up some good points. He really did push a lot of Beatles tunes, and those were Beatles tunes that were just fun to hear. And completely unexpected you know to hear the baba o'reilly tomorrow never knows double encore for the first time you know was to be able to say i've seen the dead a hundred times and boy this is totally you know blowing my ears off this is this is completely in a whole new direction and and he was great like that and he did bring some of his own tunes in and we're i know we're going to listen to one in a minute or two but i think he gave them a great boost and and i say that i think that vince did it and he really impressed me because to some degree he did it with two hands tied behind his back, right? Number one, he wasn't Brent. And for the a lot of the people seeing The Grateful Dead at that time, Brent was the only keyboard player they ever knew, and that was a big thing that he had to get over. Number two, we've talked about this too, it's hard to say how seriously the band took him musically, right? Because they decided, no Hammond B3, you're going to play on your little tiny electric keyboard up there and, you know, do your thing. And I think for a musician like Vince, that was very limiting. Um, and yet, you know, that didn't seem to slow him down. And, um, uh, you know, as far as I was concerned, uh, when, when we were, we talked about those shows at 1992 out at the Sam Boyd Silver Bowl, that was Vince. You know, Vince was up to doing the one playing the keyboarding on all of that. And we've talked about what a great job he did and came in and helped out when one of Jerry's guitar strings broke and other stuff. I, I always thought of him as, a, you know, it's, it's too bad that he got the band when they were already, you know, some people would say on the downside, especially Jerry. Um, you know, if he had been their keyboard player in the early 1980s, who knows where he might have taken them. 
Yeah, and you raise a point, too, with Brent, which is that when Brent first joined the band, he did have some contributions early on. I mean, he brought in Easy to Love You and Far From Me, like, kind of right as soon as he joined the band in 79. Uh, and then he brought in some collab songs, you know, whether it was Give Me Some Lovin' or, um, or, or uh, you know, uh, Dear Mr. Fantasy or a couple others like that. But there wasn't a, a huge amount of new music that came out of Brent until probably late 80s when he introduced uh, Blow Away and We Can Run and, um, uh, and, and one other one at, at the time. You know, whereas like Vinny came into it just kind of like guns a blazing with new songs and new ideas and saying, hey, I really want to try this or try that. So while he only had, you know, two or three originals that were his, like Samba in the Rain and Long Way to Go Home, uh, you know, there was all sorts of other stuff. That was that was all in a very short span. You know, I think he was instrumental in bringing probably 10 or 12 songs in total to the uh, the Dead's repertoire. So, you know, this wasn't a question of him being gun shy in terms of like, introducing stuff to the band or coming to practice with a... Uh, with new ideas, you know. So as I said, like in many ways, he didn't get the credit that he deserved as a musician, but you know, he should get the credit in re-energizing the band to think about music in a new way and going after some songs that Vince thought would be really fun for the band to take on, as well as doing some originals. And I think if he'd had as many years as Brent did, if he had you know a full ten years of the band, we probably would have seen you know significantly more come out of him in terms of introducing you know new original material or in terms of um, you know finding other covers that he wanted to throw in the mix. So, you know, like at the time, I wasn't nearly as big a, a Vince fan as I was a Brent fan, as you said, getting over that hurdle of, you know, every tape I'd ever listened to, you know, for the five years before that. And, you know, the shows I first started seeing the dead were, were Brent. And I didn't think Vince really like held up in terms of, uh, you know, quality of musicianship. But now as I've gotten older, I certainly appreciate him a lot more. And there's times I go back and listen to things. And as you said, you'll hear, you know, a tape or a disc or, you know, a track and you go, wow, that, that's Vince, you know, that's, there, there's some really, really unique stuff in there. I'd love to hear, like, isolated tracks of just Vince's playing, because I think it's probably much more complicated than I gave it credit for at the time. It just didn't have that same full sound that you expected out of, like, a Melvin Seals or a, a Brent Midland using a Hammond B3 or, or using more of an organ sound. I think that's all very true, you know, and, and there really are a lot of parallels. You know, we talk about how uh, by 79, 80, and 81, and, and while... You and I have, have featured, uh, you know, a number of shows and songs from that era. Uh, I think for a lot of deadheads, that was kind of like a transitional period. Not even just so much because of Keith uh, leaving the band, but, you know, I'm sure people, you know, the, the people who were hardcore in the late 60s and early 70s, you know, by the 80s are kind of reaching an age where maybe they were moving on, whether there was going to be the next big generation that was going to follow in. And I think that, you know, a lot of people say it was reflected in the way the dead were playing for a while, and people give Brent a, a lot of credit for really coming in and revitalizing them. And I think that, that Vince faced the same thing ten years later, and you know, leaving the 80s, now we're going into the 90s, and, and you know, he may have even had it a little bit harder. You know, Jerry had already had one stroke, a second medical incident, and was not nearly the, the same guy that he was when Brent joined in 79, and, and, and Vinny really held up with all of it. And, uh, um, you know, it was great when we've talked about him before, and it's always great to talk to people who know him and had the opportunity to play with him, uh, you know, to really, to really kind of confirm for us what we all think we know and kind of hoping we know, that he was a good guy and he had the right kind of personality, probably most importantly, to be able to fit in to a group that at that point in time was, I mean, being treated reverentially. I mean, they were already past the point of, like, people breaking down barriers to get in to see their shows, and that's a tough place to fit in all of a sudden. For sure. And uh, I think one of the funny things that I read about, you know, Vince joining the band is, you know, you'd think that, um, you know, they'd send him sheet music for uh, for a lot of the songs and say, you know, learn this. 
And when they asked him, you know, uh, how did you get ready and prepare for this? He's like, well, they sent me tapes. <laughs> they sent me tapes to listen to of live, of live shows. And basically, he had to listen to a bunch of shows and put it together by ear and figure out what it was that he was meant to do on these songs. And as I said, you know, like a, a huge uh, repertoire of different songs. So for him to do that, that's it's pretty interesting. The, the other thing that I, I find interesting personally is that I always think of Vince as being, you know, significantly younger than the rest of the band, but, you know, really he was, he was only, you know, a couple of years younger than Bobby when he joined, which is much different than, you know, kind of like the Dead & Co. Uh, list right now when you think about how young John Mayer is or O'Teal is or some of those guys are by comparison to uh, the rest of the Grateful Dead. But in this case, you know, you had essentially a contemporary of theirs that already had a, a really good, solid music career playing with Todd Rundgren and playing with the Tubes. For him to enter, you know, kind of a third chapter of his musical career with, you know, another band that was putting out maybe not hits, but uh, the way the Tubes did, but but certainly putting out, you know, music that sold out more stadiums, you know. So, you know, for him, he said that he he loved the, uh, the, the ability to only be on the road, you know, 75 nights to 100 nights a year instead of being out on the road in a bus for 200 nights a year the way he used to with his old outfits. And that's, you know, the sign of a, of a guy that was reaching the point in his musical career where, you know, he didn't want to sleep in tombstone or sleep in coffins on a, on a tour bus anymore. You know, so Vince um, kind of fit right in in terms of, uh, in, in terms of, you know, age and experience. He did. And he made great music with them. And, you know, we've, we've often uh, talked about and, and revisited uh, uh, what happened with Vince and the band post Jerry, and you know maybe that's uh, something we can get to in a minute. But uh, I think you got another uh, tune lined up for us here, don't you? Yeah, let's listen to another one of his uh, songs. This one isn't original. This is a long way to go home, uh, which was uh, probably the song he played the most of the Grateful Dead over his tenure. And uh, I think of his songs probably the one that I enjoyed hearing the most. It had great jam from Garcia in this one. that tune because the uh the jam is not just a, a garcia jam but it's also a vince jam on the uh, on the keyboards and it's just it, it, i think pretty high energy so even if you didn't necessarily love the um the message of the song which is um you know sort of a similar victim of the crime or a um you know day job kind of theme to it of uh you know drug addiction and sort of the the, the badness that happens that no one in the grateful dead lot really wanted to hear about it, it was still a well <laughs> a well played tune with a with a lot of you know fun energy that was in it well that's true and for me that's ultimately the most important thing you know if you can write tunes if you're a member of the grateful dead but the the band has to buy into it jerry has to buy into it you know it's one thing for jerry to you know to to break out on a great eyes of the world and or uh, fire on the mountain like we've been talking about lately and and drop in amazing solos those are his songs he's inspired by those but when you're picking up a tune that vince welnick wrote for the grateful dead 
right? Just like we were all waiting to see how he would be with, uh, you know, the songs that Brent wrote. And, and I remember originally the first couple of times I heard Far From Me thinking it didn't really seem to like, you know, have that same crackling energy that other, uh, you know, more well-established dead tunes did, although certainly by the end, uh, they had picked up that tune and a number of other Brent tunes and were really rocking out on them. And it was great to see Jerry, you know, rock out on this tune. And, uh, you know, look, this is your guy. He's in your band. He's your keyboard player. If, if you can't support him and, and, you know, play hard for him, what's the point? Yeah, and I'm a little disappointed that uh, they basically had enough material to put on an album right when, uh, when Garcia passed, and none of those songs ever made it onto an album. I thought posthumously they would have actually released an album that would have had, you know, uh, Karina on it and had um, Long Way to Go Home, and, you know, Phil had released, what, like four new tunes between, like, Childhood's End and, and uh, If the Shoe Fits and sort of a you know, handful of other random ones that uh, only were played a, a couple of times. But Vince had, you know, Long Way to Go Home, he had Samba in the Rain, and, uh, you know, Garcia had plenty of songs, whether it was uh, Days Between or So Many Roads. There was, like, more than enough material uh, that came out between 92 and 94 to, to fill, you know, probably a double album. And, uh, and none of that outside of some live material ever made it out, you know, to, to be uh, put out to the, the public. When I know, that, you know, some of those were recorded in the studio. They definitely laid down those tracks. So maybe one day we'll get the, uh, you know, the, the missing album or the missing double album that... Uh, that should have seen the light of day, I would have thought, in 94, 95. Well, it's, that's true. I actually have an album called, oh boy, I, uh, like San Francisco Earthquake or something like that. And it's it's an album made up of all of those new tunes you're mentioning that never made it onto an album, but uh, being presented in, in live versions. So, you know, they, they basically did, not an official release, it was a bootleg release, but... You know, it was somebody addressing that need. And you're right. And, you know, look, to me, the reason why that's a little bit odd is because, A, why aren't you putting out an album? You know, at that stage of your career, whether you, you know, albums have always been their friends. They've never really hurt them all that bad. It would have been a great thing to put out. And especially at that time, they were already playing the songs in concert, so it wasn't going to require um, any extra effort on their part. Um, it, you know, it would, it would certainly have expanded their popularity and, and maybe that was part of their concern maybe they were maybe they were trying to to, to, to put a, a lid on that a little bit to avoid the scenes that were starting to develop uh, at their shows but the guy who really gets screwed by that is Vince because there's no record royalties coming in you know and the band itself look by that point they had already more or less you know established themselves financially and doing what they're doing and I'm not suggesting that they were doing it on purpose or or to screw Vince um, but it's just you know if you come into the band at that point in time and that's the direction they want to go or, or don't want to go uh, you know, that's where it leaves you. And, and, you know, the only, the only reason why you have to raise an eyebrow is because they've made a couple of very celebrated comebacks, the, the Terrapin family reunion in 2002, and then subsequently the, the 50th anniversary shows. And, you know, Vince was never considered for those. He was never brought in to play with the band again. And I always wondered about that. I mean, at, at the time that Jerry Garcia died, he was part of the Grateful Dead. They apparently, you know, for reasons that I have no, don't know, and don't even want to try to imagine or put, you know, thoughts or ideas in anybody else's head. But that just seemed to me to be a little, you know, a little bit off. And I love Jeff Comenti, and he's a great keyboard player, but he never played with the Grateful Dead, and Vince Welnick did. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, it's just basically kicking out a band member, and you know, there's always that, uh, always that um, democracy that existed within the Grateful Dead that every band member got paid the same amount, every band member was was treated equally. So to have one essentially fired, you know, sort of uh, w without any you know, real fanfare, but just, you know, hey, next time we decide to play together, you're not getting the nod. It had to feel pretty weird for Vince just to 
you know, oh yeah, we're going back in the road. Like, well, we are, but but you're not. You know, it's uh, it, it's got to be a little um, upsetting when you're the person that did just spend five years and played you know four hundred shows or three hundred something shows of them to uh, to not get the nod. I think so, and and you know, part of that I always chalked up a little bit to the fact that look, Jerry was gone. They could all you know choose to exercise a little bit more of a creative and authoritative role. And, you know, my guess, I, I, I like to, you know, think, well, there was more of an indication that, you know, they wanted to go back and focus on a lot of the older stuff. And the, But, I mean, Vince had learned all of that, and anybody they brought in to play the keyboards was going to have to learn all of that. And Jeff Comenti is an amazing, amazing keyboard player. I'm one of his biggest fans. I love the way he sounds. I love what he does. But he never played on stage with the Grateful Dead. He was never part of that onstage conversation that the Grateful Dead had, and Vince Welnick was. And I was always very, very disappointed that, uh, that you know, that he wasn't couldn't be part of the core four and make it the core five. And, and maybe that's because the core four dated all the way back to the beginning, and he didn't. Yeah, I mean, look, I think uh, if Garcia had passed ten years earlier, there's no chance in the world when they got back together they wouldn't be playing shows with with Brent Midland. You know, it's like Brent was was part of the band. So I would have thought that. You know, granted, Vince was only there for five years, like not even five years, just shy you know, of five. But, um, but it, it seems unfathomable when you when you look at look back at it that way. As we are the Deadhead Cannabis Show, maybe we should talk a little bit about some cannabis news right now. Please, uh, there's a couple of big things that have, that have happened in the last week, and I think the the biggest one is the DEA weighing in on D eight THCO, which. Uh, I think there's probably a lot of people out there that don't know what D8THCO is. You hear D8 and you hear the DEA, you know, made D8 illegal. Well, that's that's not necessarily right, is it, Larry? Did, did you get a chance to take a look at this? I did, and, and it's not. And But here's the problem that I see. Congress passed the 2018 Farm Bill, and it says what it says. And basically it says that hemp and any of its, you know, derivative cannabinoids are legal, absolutely legal. And we, we've talked about the fact that, you know, maybe Congress didn't pay enough attention or maybe somebody didn't want them to pay enough attention to the stuff that when you say 0.3%, that means that there's a measurable, measurable amount of THC in there. And there's other cannabinoids that have uh, psychoactive properties and potentials. And now everybody's kind of acting like, well, this just came out of the woods. And so, of course, now we start diving into what you can do with modern science, right, and everything else. When they've got TH, D8, and then D8, THCO, and, and everything else along the way. And, you know, now they're trying to come back and kind of put the genie back in the bottle to some degree. And I don't think this is the way to do it. I think that, you know, they've, they've made their bed. They've got to sleep with it. And uh, the truth of the matter is, is that, look, from their perspective, if they have any real concerns, if, if they truly have legitimate concerns about THC use on the marijuana side, I, I've always kind of looked at all of this stuff as marijuana light, more or less. You know, it, it creates a buzz for you, but it's not going to create the same kind of buzz, you know, that smoking, uh, you know, a good ounce of a heavy indica is going to do for you. Yeah, but I think the thing that's interesting to me, though, is, that, is the DEA did not weigh in on D8 THC um, Delta 8. They only weighed in on the THCO, which is the uh, the acetate ester that goes, you know, as, as part of. And the distinction they made was a was a very interesting distinction of saying there is no way to do this without a synthetic process, um, you know, in there. Whereas with D eight, there's you know plenty of ways you can extract D eight, um, you know, using a solventless process or using you know some sort of a, a natural means to do it. So 
I, I think the headline is meant to sort of scare the D8 community, but they, they didn't make D8 illegal. They just made D8, you know, THCO illegal. And, and even that, you know, to your point, they can classify it or consider it illegal, but, you know, is that dicta or is that actually, is that actually law? I mean, if that were to go to court and someone were to say, hey, look, I just got busted with THCO um, D8, and they challenged it for the same you know, reasons that you did, saying, hey, look, the letter of the law from the Farm Bill says I can do exactly this. And if I use a synthetic process or a natural process, that's a distinction without a difference because once it's been legalized through the Farm Bill, everything that follows is legal as well. I, I would like to see this one get challenged, and I'd like to see how it comes up because the, the DEA tried this crap you know, two years ago or three years ago when they put out their, their interim final rule. And that interim final rule had a fair amount of bite for about the first six months until all of a sudden law firms you know, started looking at it the same way that I did, which was going... Well, wait a second. That's not what Congress said. And uh, if Congress wants to change their laws, they've got the opportunity to do so, and they can do it in any legislative session they want. But we're going to put out a legal opinion saying, you know, we think our clients can can uh, produce this. And, and I would expect that you'd get the same result with a, a D8THCO. But more importantly, the fact that DEA the DEA did not opine on D8 in the same um, in the same opinion. Uh, says to me that they're probably getting the sense that they've got no leg to stand on, and now they're just sort of grasping at straws. Like, well, what, what can we do? You know, who can we shut down? Because it's you know, it, it's not the D eight industry right now. It's so it, it's it's any other derivative that has a synthetic component to it that they're trying to say, well, that falls outside the confines of of what Congress was uh was allowing for, and that's that's why I found this one from a total nerdy perspective to be really interesting, and uh, you know, that, I don't think this is a we haven't seen the last of the story. No, we haven't. And look, what what I find is is that this is somebody trying to come back and you know clean up a mess that they think they made. That it, it, it's a, it's a remedy for a, uh, it's a distinction that, as you say, is completely irrelevant because it has it, it. You're right. It has absolutely nothing to do with the fact that a thin, synthetic process is used. It has everything to do with what is the original source of the material that we're working with, and if the original source of the material that we're working with is a legal plant. And who the hell cares what happens after that as long as you're not infusing illegal THC into it? Anything short of that, within reason, of course, you can't you know, do things that will damage or you know, injure somebody, but what are we talking about? This is the, the DEA and the government getting so caught up in this idea that anyone who intoxicates themselves with a cannabis plant one way or another, we're going to find a way to punish them. And that's silly. This is this is a game that can go on forever. You know, Doonesbury used to joke about this, right? With uh, when when all of the uh, MDMA and MDAH and all these, which were all coming out, and all they were was one molecule different, one way or the other. And they had like the little moving van, you know, of the guys who were manufacturing it. It was like, oh wait, this one just became illegal. Okay, now shift it over this way. Boom, now it's legal again. And that's no way to. To, to monitor, to have a drug policy, you know, you, you made a decision on hemp, move on. There's, there's nothing here that needs to be remedied except, like you say, trying to justify their own existence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, again, people are always going to be one step ahead of the DEA in terms of, uh, of being creative. Uh, and, and, you know, that's for, for those that are uninitiated, the term Molly uh, came out of change to the, uh, the, the composition of MDMA, and the Molly was originally the floating molecule. So Molly being short for molecule uh, was, you know, sort of the latest iteration that, that hit in like 1994 or before that everyone was either doing press tabs or, or doing sassafras. And then all of a sudden one day someone's like, oh, well, let's just let's suspend this one molecule a little higher. And that was the floating molecule and hence 
you know, the last 20 years of MDMA has been all about Molly, but which, by the way, was a, a significant improvement. As much as I love sassafras, uh, when Molly hit, I was like, that shit was bomb. So what I will say uh, on this one is, again, our friends at uh, Marijuana Moment did a really nice job in drafting this article. And hats off again to Kyle Yeager, who always just does a fantastic job of, of writing great articles on what's happening legislatively. And um, in this particular case, he actually published the, uh, the letter that attorney Rod Kite uh, in North Carolina received. And if you guys uh, out there aren't familiar with Rod's work, he's the one that um, fought the, uh, the case, the Hemp Associations of America against the, uh, against the feds. Uh, have the, I've had the opportunity to spend quite a few emails back and forth with Rod about two years ago as I uh, wrote an opinion paper that he ended up being very impressed with and coming back and saying, do you mind if I use some of those arguments that you made as, uh, as I actually go into, um, into court with this? And I think I'd, I'd said, you know, I've told you guys a story before that uh, for me, I'd been an expert on a case in Colorado and uh, was the first time that um, we got an opinion from the Colorado courts on work in progress hemp oil um, and sort of the same the same case that uh, that the farm bill had legalized what they were doing, and you couldn't say that anything that happened along the way, even if it popped hot for you know above point zero three percent, it was irrelevant if the starter material was hemp. And I actually got the court to agree with me through my my expert witness report, and that was what Rod was uh, was commenting on. So he is on the forefront of this, and surprisingly, Rod was uh, was in agreement that the DEA made the right decision on this one, or at least that he thought that was the congressional intent, as they never meant to to legalize synthetics. Um, I don't know if I agree with him on this one. I, I actually, I, I think the DEA got it wrong again and that, um, you know, it, it will be challenged despite whether or not, you know, a great legal mind in this space uh, has, has said otherwise. Yeah, you know, and at the end of the day, I don't care what Congress intended, I care what they did. And yeah. this is the law that they passed. And if it's not what they intended to, then shame on them. We're not taking it seriously enough in the first place to sit down and really crank out, you know, legislation that would actually work. Yep. And in other news, we've got uh, Washington State that just um, passed their interstate commerce bill, very similar to what we saw out of California. So that means we now have it in Oregon, Washington, California, and New Jersey. Again, all symbolic. We've talked about the last couple of weeks, but it just keeps happening. So, uh, you know, let's bring it up again that Washington did it. We also have uh, Louisiana trying to legalize recreational cannabis. They've already legalized medicinal, but now we've actually got uh, some some push to, to legalize recreational. You know, much like Nevada, you'd think that you know another home of vice would be uh, relatively comfortable with uh, legalized cannabis for recreational use. But you know, I, I think that one's got some some wood to chop before we see a very Republican legislature uh, pass that bill. But it's nice to see it being introduced, and we also. Um, this is one I'd like to discuss a bit more. New Hampshire had a homegrown hearing about whether or not you can actually home grow. And, uh, you know, there's there's a lot of arguments for and against. You know, the, the argument for is that, hey, it's not going to affect the uh, the large industries. You know, if people home grow, just like if they home brew or if they grow their own tomatoes at home, it shouldn't really you know, affect the industry. Um, the other side of it is, you know, nothing commands the same price. You know, you don't if you brew your own batch of beer... You're not out there selling cases or kegs. You know, if you if you grow six plants, that's a fair amount of weed. If you're growing, you know, plants in twenty gallon uh, tubs, and all of a sudden now you've got a couple pounds of weed, and you know you're only able to smoke a couple ounces, and now you're able to sell, you know, thousands of dollars worth of uh, of excess cannabis. 
So I, I'm not sure where I come out in this one. I'm a huge supporter of HomeGrow, but I also know that HomeGrow is not for personal consumption. There's no one I've ever met that home grows where it's just for personal consumption. There's always enough to sell or at least give away quite a bit of. So uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how I think about this one. Where do you come out on this one, Larry? I come out 100% in favor of home grow, and although I don't have the same uh, level of experience directly with it as you do, I, I find it hard to believe that you know it, it's going to make a significant difference. And here's why: it's true that if you home grow. Uh, you know, and even if you only grow five plants, you, you can produce quite a large amount of marijuana. However, I don't really know that many people that will take the time to actually grow marijuana the way it needs to be grown as opposed to throwing some seeds in the dirt. Let's see what happens. Yeah, you can go and buy lights. You can buy in this and that. But, you know, I, I think most of us have seen and understand that there's an art to growing marijuana, just like there's an art to making wine and just like there's an art to brewing beer. And, you know, nobody lays awake at night being worried about the beer or the wine. And I understand your point that they have different price points, but, uh, you know, but, but they are what they are. If, if I have money and I can buy an ounce of marijuana, you know, the, the question for me is, do I want to buy, do I, do I want to go to a dispensary? Do I want to go on the black market or do I want to grow my own? And I think for most people, grow your own is not going to be a viable answer. I don't think that they're going to take the time, spend the money and really undertake the process that's necessary to grow marijuana at that level of quality that you're going to be abandoning the dispensaries. Um, and, and even when you home grow, you can only grow so much. I mean, you know, four, five, six pounds is not an insignificant amount of marijuana. But dispensaries, you know, sell multiples of that, you know, all day, every day. Yeah. So, so I'd agree with you. I don't think it's going to affect, you know, the amount that dispensaries are going to sell. I don't think this is like an aggregate effect test that, you know, the aggregate effect is going to really disrupt commerce. But what I am concerned about is the illicit revenue that's produced um, for the home grower. That's unreported revenue. You know, it'd be one thing if there's a way for them to say, hey, I'm allowed to sell up to two pounds, you know, a year or something like that. And you can report that on your tax, uh, on your income taxes. But this is basically just, you know, like... A, a backdoor way to make a bunch of extra money that, um, you know, look, everyone's got their side hustles and I'm, I'm not against, uh, you know, people doing it, but if there's, you know, tens of thousands of people that are home growing and everyone's, you know, making their, their four or five, 10 K, you know, extra per year, that there's, that's a fair amount of, of revenue. That's, that's not, you know, being reported. And, you know, as someone that pays his taxes and, and tries to do things properly, that's where I've got a little bit of a, uh, of a concern with it. It's not that the industry is not going to be able to survive without it. It's just like, how much illegal money is sort of being funneled through this as a result of, of people growing, you know, 20 pounds a year, 15 pounds a year. It's, it, it's not insignificant. It's not. But to me, that's a pushback on the government again. You know, the government says, okay, fine, we're going to allow home grow, but they haven't taken the time to really do their homework to determine how much is legitimate. And I have people asking me all the time, you know, here in Illinois, well, I'm a patient, I can grow up to five plants. That's right. Well, what am I going to do with all that marijuana? I presume you're going to smoke it or use it as part of your medical regimen or whatever you need it for. Well, what if I want to sell it? What if? Am I allowed to? No. Can I? Do whatever you want. It's like, it's like nothing else. It's, it's no different than if you hopped on a plane and flew to Oregon and bought a lot and, and brought it back and then you wanted to sell it in the neighborhood a little bit because transport, transporting it's not easy, but neither is growing it, you know? And, well, and what I would say is I, I don't brew my own beer because it's... Um, it's so much more convenient for me to go to a supermarket and, and buy, you know, good beer and it's a uh, better quality and it's not that expensive. Right. So if the same thing were true, if cannabis pricing was significantly better because there aren't nearly as many restrictions and tax rates weren't so high and encourage people were instead of buying eights for 40 and $50, you could buy a grade eighth of weed for 15 or 20. 
I think that would pretty much like disrupt the, the need for home grow and it certainly you know wouldn't get people excited about you know selling whatever their extra crop is. So I, I pass a lot of the judgment on the government for for not making this more convenient and creating the more efficient market that you know encourages people to want to home grow in the first place. Uh, no doubt that the vast majority of what's you know produced in, in sort of like the, the high-end uh, indoor sort of craft boutique growers uh, for the commercial market is going to be superior to what you're going to find from you know your average grower. But the average grower can probably do just as well as guys growing in hoop houses or growing outdoor, you know, sort of your, your larger uh, mids grows. So it's, it's hard to say, but I, I certainly think that cannabis is far too expensive, which is the motivation for people to want to, uh, to, want to grow their own and, and, you know, give it a shot. So I don't disagree with that, but I, I still just don't see that enough people are willing to take eight, 10 months to grow the volume that they need at the level that they think or hope that they can get. Look, there's definitely people out there who do it and, and, and they want to. I do understand the difference in the price. And, you know, I tell all my clients, don't sell it. You know, you can't sell it. And Well, uh, as I said, coming into the show, I had a really short schedule today, so I apologize. We're going to have to cut this one relatively short. You know, for our audience that's used to our one-hour shows, this one's, you know, clocking in significantly less. But had some things we wanted to go over today, had some interesting uh, uh, questions about what's happening in the canvas industry and cover some of that. And again, wanted to wish our good uh, old buddy, uh, Vince Welnick, what would have been his 72nd birthday today. So happy birthday, Vinny. And uh, thanks for you know the music you put out with The Grateful Dead and with The Tubes and with Todd Rundgren and all the other iterations and stuff you did afterwards with our, our buddy Greg Corner. So, uh, you know, for me, I, we're going to leave with one more that's actually from 531-1992 from the Silver Bowl San Boyd uh, Stadium in Las Vegas, which we've covered, you know, a handful of times. It's the Steve Miller night where he played the, uh, the, the Morning Dew and a couple other tunes. But uh, this is one of the first times they did the combination of uh, Bob O'Reilly, Tomorrow Never Knows, and Tomorrow Never Knows is one of the more psychedelic Beatles tunes. So I'll let you sign off and say goodbye as well, Larry. But, you know, for me, we'll see you all next week and uh, looking forward to it. And uh, after Larry signs off, we'll listen to a little more Beatles. Thank you, Rob. As always, look forward to seeing you next week. Absolutely. Look, we'll dive into that in one second. The only other thing I wanted to just throw out there really fast because it is significant for our listeners is that Fish has announced its summer tour. And I was talking about this with my son because they're playing a whole bunch in July, August, and September. They're not coming to Chicago. They're not coming to the Midwest. And instead, they're going to Madison Square Garden and playing seven shows indoors. Now, that's all part of their Madison, Madison Square Garden mystique and their desire to, you know, to, to, to keep filling that place up until you actually have somebody who's seen 100 fish shows only seeing them at Madison Square Garden. However... It's summertime, for God's sakes. Nobody wants to go inside a big arena in the summer. There's so many beautiful outdoor arenas where you can be playing. Alpine Valley, Deer Creek, all of these places all through the Midwest. New York gets you for uh, New Year's every year. They get you uh, when you do your other, when your other shows up there in the fall. Come on, get out of Madison Square Garden. Get out of the inside. Come out and play outside for everyone. And come to the people who can't always go to see you. That's what we want to do. That's what we want to hear. And take a lesson from Springsteen because his summer tour was announced. And then he added more shows because he realized he hadn't hit all the cities that he wanted to hit. And this guy is, you know, he's as, as old as they come practically, even though he still looks like he's not. And I love Springsteen. And unfortunately, when he comes here, I'm going to be out of town. So I'm going to have to find a way to catch up with him because that's a tour uh, that has to be seen as well. But having said that about Fish, I'm sure their shows will be great. Anywhere you see them will be fun. Uh, so enjoy. Um, thank you again, everyone, for listening to us today. We will be back next week, as always. And uh, thanks to our uh, fearless producer, Dan Humiston. Take care. 
have fun and enjoy your cannabis responsibly. And uh, one last Vince Welnick-inspired Grateful Dead number. listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Cannabis Health Radio is a podcast about stories from people around the world who have used cannabis to deal with serious ailments, many of them life-threatening. My name is Ian Jessup. My co-host Corey Elland is no stranger to the devastating emotional impact faced by so many people receiving a death sentence diagnosis from a doctor. Told she only had months to live with anal canal cancer, Corey researched and immediately began using cannabis oil to eliminate her cancer and has been cancer-free for more than a decade. She told herself that if it worked, she would spend the rest of her life helping others, which she does tirelessly every day. When you listen to our podcast, you'll hear many stories like Corey's, along with others who have used cannabis oil for many more ailments besides cancer, such as chronic pain, PTSD, MS, and many, many more. As one of our guests said, your podcast gave me the confidence to save my own life. We regularly get messages from listeners who have heard our podcast and use cannabis to solve a serious health issue of their own or that of a loved one. We hope you listen to these stories and be as inspired and moved as we are with each and every episode.